Y'all are awake. I need some espresso this morning, and you guys are it. So, um, good morning, everybody. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Eric Solomon, and I get to serve as one of the uh, preaching pastors in our uh, extended Wheaton Bible Church familia. Uh, normally, I am at Tri-Village Church, our congregation in Streamwood, because I also have the privilege of serving as the campus pastor at TVC. And so your brothers and your sisters in our extended Wheaton Bible Church familia greet you, are grateful to call you brothers and sisters. And before we dive in, one of the things that I, I like to say, uh, because at TVC we often have little ones in the service with us, if there are any children here and, and anyone's getting chaotic, it's okay, I got you, I got little ones myself. And so parents, I want to encourage you to stick it out with us. Um, if, if, you're, if it's getting a little too real for you, that's okay too. There are family rooms that are out there, but I want to encourage you after the little ones calm down to come and be with us because this is family. Amen? Well, this morning, we're going to continue our, our, our celebration of Advent, uh, this, this season where we relive the anticipation of Jesus' first coming and more faithfully inhabit the, the, the hope of Jesus' second coming. This morning, we're going to enter that hope by meditating on Isaiah 9's next description of the promised Savior, Everlasting Father. And I want to ask you a question before we dive into the text this morning. What comes to mind when you hear that word, Father? Is it memories? Maybe it's nightmares. Maybe it's a better question to ask what comes to heart when you hear me say, Father? Very few words in, in any human language carry the same weight as the word Father, Papi, Appa, Av. Dad, Pita, a word that carries a universe of protection and love and care, and a word that also trembles under the darkness of pain and apathy and abuse for so many. A word that finds its only redemption in the God who enters that darkness with his universe of loving kindness. This morning... I know we have members of our familia and even visitors who are joining us this morning who, who can't even say the word because of all that it means for their memories and their stories. My prayer today is that our meditation on this description of Jesus would be one step closer to healing and redeeming that word for you. I also know that this morning there are members of our family and visitors in our gathering who find deep comfort in that name, Father. My prayer is that this morning together we would revisit the comfort of that name as we re-inhabit the hope of Advent together. So with that said, let's enter that hope by opening up God's word together. We're going to be in Isaiah 9, 6 through 7, if you want to turn there in your word. Um, I actually want us to do something. I don't know if you guys have been doing it the past couple Sundays, but, but I want us to read this text of Scripture together. These two verses, it's only two verses, so you should be able to, to keep up with us. To me, a congregational reading, and if you're able, I'd like you to ask you to please stand. We do this at TVC for the reading of God's Word. We're going to stand, and we're going to read through this passage together. You guys going to follow along with me? We good? Amen? Amen. All right. People of, of the King, the Word of God speaks to us today from Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. Let's read it out loud together. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, 
Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This is God's word. You may be seated. Will you pray with me? King over all creation, gracious and merciful God, this morning we position ourselves under your word together and we ask that you would change us. Would you make us more like Jesus as we gather together in the family that you have made? I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts here and now would be full of worship and gratitude and conviction and grace and mercy. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Well, I figured I would start with a a, a silly joke I read in a book. Um, Have you ever heard uh, the one about the guy who got his mom an expensive parrot for Mother's Day? No, I'll tell you. Well, this guy, he paid $10,000 for a parrot that could speak 40 languages and sing a few hymns. He sent the bird to his mom, but then he didn't hear back for a few days. And so he was nervous that she didn't like the bird, and so he called her and said, well, mom, so... How'd you like the bird? To which she replied, it was great. He was filled with pride, and so the son asked, well, what was your favorite part? She paused, and then she answered, the thighs, they were delicious. (laughs) Pastor John Onuchekwa uses this story in his book on prayer to illustrate a principle that I think we need to pay attention to this morning as we meditate on this particular description of Jesus. The wrong interpretation leads to the wrong application. And potentially disastrous results, at least for any parrots that are in the area. This morning, I want to give you two tools in your Bible reading toolbox before we jump in that will help us avoid this application problem. And the reason being is I want these tools to form guardrails that will keep us protected as we study this particular description of Jesus. Because immediately when I started studying this passage, I had a question. How can Jesus who the Bible explains is the Son of God, be described here as the everlasting Father? Did Isaiah get his prophetic wires crossed? Am I missing something here? Have you ever asked a question like that when you were studying your Bible? Well, that's why I want to give you these tools. Because I I want them to form these guardrails so that we don't go off the rails when we try to understand how Jesus can be described as everlasting Father. These guardrails will keep us on the right track of interpretation so that we can stay on the right track of application. And so here are the two tools that I'm going to be using this morning. Scripture interprets Scripture and context is king. Scripture interprets, I mean, I, this isn't, I know this, this isn't a class on Bible reading right now, um, but every time I get a chance to preach, I love the opportunity to sort of pull back the curtain so that you see that when, our pre- when preachers come up here and we, we preach the word, we're not doing some kind of magic trick. I would rather you leave here and go, hey, I see where you got that, preacher man. Or, even better, I could study like that myself in my, in my Bible. So that's why I want to give you these two tools. Scripture interprets Scripture and context is king. And I'm going to do this really quickly. You see, Scripture interprets Scripture is this principle. That whenever we're dealing with difficult passages of Scripture, they should be read side by side with less difficult passages in Scripture. That a a, a less clear passage would be made more clear by being side by side with a more clear passage. 
Right? So in this example, it's clear from the New Testament that the Son of God and God the Father are distinct. Two different persons in the Trinity. They're different. They're not the same. So when we come across this passage that is more difficult to make sense of, we do not ignore what we know from elsewhere in the Bible. The Son is not the Father, and the Father is not the Son. So there's got to be something else that's going on here. That's first principle. Scripture interprets Scripture. The second tool that I want to put in your toolbox that will serve as some guardrails for us is that context is king. Not only do we need to hold on to the rail of Scripture interpreting Scripture, we also have to pay attention to the context that we're in. And the context of this passage helps us in two different ways. The first way that it helps us is that we're in a prophecy. We're we're in a prophetic statement, which means we should expect things like images and symbolism and all kinds of, uh, of descriptive language. The second way it helps is that this prophecy is given to a specific people at a specific time with specific concerns. In other words, this passage is loaded with imagery and is not intended as a lesson on the Trinity. Instead, it is a prophetic message to a particular people at a particular time. Not not a teaching moment meant to explain that God is one essence and three persons. Other passages are much more clear in their intent to do that. Scripture interprets Scripture. Here, context is king, which means that this description is more image than title. It's more like in Genesis 4 when Jabal is described as the father of those who live in tents and raise livestock, and his brother Jubal is described as the father of all who play stringed instruments and pipes. You can look that up, Genesis 4. It's not that they are the biological father of nomads or musicians. It's more like they are the best at, or the first ones who, or the ones who pass down. It's much more like that than a genealogy. Scripture interprets Scripture, context is king. Uh, these, these guardrails will keep us from jumping off the cliff into heresy. And, I, and I'm doing this because this passage has actually been used by a particular cult that's known as Oneness Pentecostals to, to explain that there's no difference between the Son and the Father. They actually fall into an ancient Trinitarian heresy named modalism that, that denies the Trinity completely. These guardrails are there not to protect us from heresy, but they're also there not just to protect us, but to guide us into life-giving truth. Here's what I mean. The context of this passage makes it clear that this is not a description of the Trinity in relationship to other members of the Trinity, but of the promised one in relationship to us. How he will love and lead us. The the one whose rule and reign is is better than the dark episodes of the judges that we, we talked about when we were in Ruth whose kingdom is better than the roller coaster ride of Israel's king, a good king, a bad king, more bad kings, maybe a good king. As long as we hold on to these guardrails, these passages will bring us safely and, might I say, beautifully to the king who reigns eternally. The king who is described provocatively as everlasting father. My favorite preacher, Charles Spurgeon, once said about this passage, we must not suppose that we shall understand Jesus at a glance. A look will save the soul, but patient meditation alone can fill the mind with the knowledge of the Savior. Translation, it's complicated. But meditation transforms complexity into worship as we sit under God's word humbly and with eager expectation. And so this morning, in humility and with expectation and with these guardrails in place, I want us to continue our Advent meditation that we've been in on the promised Savior with another statement about Christmas. 
If you've been with us the past couple weeks, Pastor Hannibal has been giving us these particular statements about Christmas to help us focus our worship during Advent. The first week, the statement that he gave us was that Christmas is both the most offensive and most wonderful message ever proclaimed. The second week was that Christmas is about the wonderful counselor of truth and tears. And last week, his statement was that Christmas is about a mighty God who came to redeem and redefine the concept of power. This morning, this week, our Christmas statement is that Christmas is when eternity entered time and made a new kind of family. Why am I talking about eternity and family? Because we're talking about the everlasting Father. Christmas is when eternity entered time and made a new kind of family. In other words, Christmas is about eternity embodied and familia secured. And so these are the two truths that I want us to meditate on this morning with this description of everlasting Father. Eternity embodied, familia secured. Eternity made temporal, familia created out of enemies and orphans and people who were not God's people. To see this, I'm going to be doing something that it may be a little bit unusual. We're going to be jumping around Scripture to multiple passages in the Bible because I want to paint a picture of what the everlasting Father means for us on this side of Christmas. And I'm going to show all these passages on the screen, but like examining a beautiful piece of art, I'm going to point out these multiple brushstrokes all over the painting because I want you to appreciate the beauty of the whole. So my encouragement to you is, as we do this is to write down the references and use them this week as you study in anticipation of Christmas. All right, you ready to go? Yep. All right, here we go. Eternity embodied, familia secured. I'm going to start with eternity embodied. In a book about technology, one in, insightful author was illustrating the weight of eternity in a particular way that I want to uh, replicate here with you. And so I'm asking for audience participation. I've already got you a little bit primed. You're talking to me, which is great. What I want you to do right now is I want you to raise your hand, palm up to the sky like this. All right. Now I want you to look to your right all the way, and I want you to imagine time extending out to eternity in that direction. Then I want you to look to your left and imagine time extending out to eternity in that direction. Now look back at your hand. The width of your hand is about the time that we spend on this earth, give or take. Let that sink in. Think about how brief life is, how mortal we are. No matter how much technology we invent, how, 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 much, how many diets we recommit to, how many workouts we get creative with, I'm looking at you, CrossFitters, we are time bound creatures. Not by choice, but by design. We all had a beginning. And without the sustaining hand of God, we will all have an end. And this affects every single human, except for one. The book of Isaiah is filled with the, the, the language of eternity. Isaiah loves to paint time with these interruptions of the one who sits outside of time, the, the eternal one. And so when Isaiah talks about one who is coming and describes him as the, the everlasting father, he is decisively placing this promised savior in a category that belongs to God and God alone. 
In other words, he is describing this promised Savior as divine. But, but not just as divine, right? After all, he's already described the Savior as a mighty God. No, Isaiah is specifically attaching a very particular aspect of divinity to the Savior, of Godhood, of what it means to be God, eternal existence. This promised one is not just another king that is promised like David. He's not just another wise man like Solomon. He, he, he's not just another human who saves for a season like the judges. He is everlasting. He, he lasts forever. He, he comes and he saves and he rules and he reigns and there is no end in sight to his kingdom. The New Testament picks up and clarifies this idea in Hebrews 13, 8, where we read this. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And that verse is not just listed in Hebrews like some kind of um, God-Savior job description. In Hebrews, the eternal nature of our Savior is used as an encouragement to his people to endure, to persevere, to, to follow him and trust him, to know that his salvation is not temporary, that, 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 that it's not just for this particular season, it's not just a band-aid. What he introduced to the world at his incarnation and by his life, what, what he accomplished on the cross and by his resurrection, that's just the beginning of his kingdom. Unlike every other kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus has no expiration date. He is everlasting. We read this in Revelation 1.8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet, and, and Omega is the last. And this is like saying A to Z, time cannot contain me. That's what God is basically saying here, that, that time exists in him and it cannot hold him. He is the one who exists, has always existed, and will always exist. He exists endlessly, always. Like a child's coloring page, God does not stay within the lines. He does not stay within the timeline of history. This is the Jesus that Hebrews encourages us with. The, the, the Jesus that Isaiah promises the one who came to earth but who has no beginning because he never began. He always was. And yet, in what can only be described as a miracle, the one who time cannot contain not only entered time but took on a body, a time-bound, breaking-down, able-to-die body. Eternity embodied. The everlasting one became temporary so that the temporary could be redeemed forever, so that by his death we could have life, eternal life, everlasting life in his everlasting kingdom. Christmas is when eternity entered time. I'm going to draw this out a little bit further for you. The fact that the promised Savior the, 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 the coming king is the everlasting one. It's not just good news because it, it means that someone without end is coming. It's good news because the God without end is coming. If it was just someone that's without end, the news might not be so good. After all, who are they? What are they like? 
There are countries all over the world right now that feel stuck in a government that feels like it has no end, ruled by a tyrant, a person whose rule ends only because of their mortality. If the coming one is not good, then the news of an everlasting kingdom does not sound very good. But that is not who is promised. The promised one is not just an eternal king. He is described as an everlasting father. And that's why eternity embodied is good news because it speaks of familia secured. You see, Christmas is not just when eternity entered time, but when God started to make a new kind of family, but when God started to secure a brand new family for himself. Because the promised one is not just everlasting, he is everlasting father. He will love us and relate to us and save us, not just as the father of eternity, but like a father forever. So here's where things start to get tricky, right? I want you to remember our guardrails. Scripture interprets Scripture. Context is king. The son is not the father. The father is not the son. Jesus is being described as a father, not as a comparison within the Trinity, but how he relates to us. Like a father. All right, you still got your hand on the rails so we don't jump into heresy? Everybody said amen? Let me show you something. In the Gospel of John, we get this very interesting exchange between Jesus and his, one of his disciples, Philip. Put it up on the screen. John 14, 8 through 10 says this. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Perfectly reasonable question, right? Near the end of his life, after explaining that he's about to die, Jesus' disciples, are, they want some reassurance that they have not thrown away their lives for another temporary revolutionary. Show us the Father. Show us God, and we will be able to hold on. What is surprising is how Jesus answers. Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How, how can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? It, Philip's question is shocking to Jesus, not because he's looking for encouragement, but because encouragement is standing right in front of him. Anyone who wants to see the Father need only look at Jesus. Not because Jesus is the Father, but because he perfectly reveals the Father to us. You see, way back in the Gospel of John, the first chapter, we read that no one has seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. That truth has been playing out day in and day out right before the eyes of Jesus' disciples. He has been showing them the Father his whole life. He is God in the flesh, the invisible God made visible. Pastor Dane Ortland describes him in his book, Gentle and Lonely, as, as heaven's eternal heart walking around on two legs in time and space. What kind of heart is that? The heart of the Father. The, the Father who has been making us into family, who, who adopts us as children and makes us into siblings. There's a phrase that I use at TVC pretty frequently to remind myself and to remind others at, at TVC. And if I'm honest, I sort of stole it from our senior pastor because he says this all the time with our, our, our staff. It's this phrase, this is family. It's the kind of phrase you say when, when someone you love tries to give you an out. right? Uh, thank you so much, but, but you, don't, you don't have to do that. Or, or, or I don't want to add to your already full plate. I know you're busy. This is family. 
It's the kind of phrase that you respond with when people who are, are newer followers of Jesus have a, a hard time understanding why, why people that they barely know, who love Jesus like they love Jesus, would want to love and serve them by doing things like cleaning up their backyard or, or, or bringing them dinner or, or, or sitting with them when someone they love is gone. This is family. This is what family does. And this is what Jesus has done for us. He, he has made a new kind of family that is not determined by a, a shared bloodline, but by the shared blood of Christ. It's a familia that is secured not by our own good works or, or genetically transmitted similarities, but by the work of the one who reveals the heart of the Father to us. The heart of an enduring and compassionate protector. A, a protector for all time who is not only mighty God, but is wonderful counselor. Who, who not only has the power to protect, but knows how to enter into pain with the right combination of truth and tears. A supernatural father. In uh, the Solomon household these days, we are in uh, what I call a, a new childhood development stage. It's the uh, try to figure out how to fit in a queen-sized bed with a child between us stage. For all the uh, donkey kicks in the back or the sleeping sideways across the top of the pillow moments that we have, every time my daughter runs into the room and wakes up my wife and I because she had a nightmare, she will always, always, always hear us say, yes, little one, you can come into bed with us. Here, there are no nightmares or monsters under the bed or scary shadows on the wall, here you have two parents who love you and will always protect you. My brother and my sister this morning, Jesus is the embodiment of the everlasting arms of the Father who will hold you no matter what nightmares this world throws at you. He is a Father who, who, who does not pretend that evil does not exist, but will never leave you alone in your suffering. He, he protects, and like a good father, he provides. You see, Isaiah reminds us that this coming rule of an everlasting kingdom is ruled by everlasting power, but it's not just this everlasting kingdom and everlasting power. It's a kingdom that is ruled by an everlasting father who knows what we need before we even ask who is tender and caring and, and willingly gives, not just good gifts, but his very life for us because he loves us. This is the heart of the Father reflected in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He protects and he provides, but he does all of this, not as some faraway God who sends his love to us like, like a father who is sending gifts while he's away at, at work and just can't be with his family. No, he is a, a personal God who is with us, Emmanuel. Theologian John Owen, in an effort to explain this personal love, asks his readers to picture anything in all of creation with a loving and tender nature and then imagine that thing with all of its imperfections taken away. Anything that disappoints. Multiply that by infinity, and there you have a picture of the Father's love for you. He does not leave us alone. He will never disappoint. He will never provoke us to anger. He is everything you've ever imagined a father could be, everything you've ever desired from your earthly father, all of the care and the protection and the provision and the relationship that all earthly fathers try to embody, 
is perfectly embodied in the love of Jesus for you and for me. The invisible God made visible in the incarnation. Now, Isaiah does not specify how this promised one will be the everlasting father to us. He only hints at it. But when we track the story of the gospel, we find that Jesus reveals God to us not only by his life, but especially by his death and resurrection. How he protects, provides, and and personally involves himself in our desperate situation. Because by his death and resurrection, he secures protection for us from sin and death. By his death and resurrection, he provides eternal life for all of us who believe. And by his death and resurrection, he shows that he does all of this not as someone who is far away, but as the God-man actually dying in our place. Do you know how incredible that is? That the one who, who is so full of life that all he needs to do is speak for life to come into existence, who cannot be contained by time and space, not only took on a body, but actually experienced death for us. He did all of that for, for you, for me, that all who believe would be saved from the destruction of sin and death that was our righteous punishment for our sin. And then, this is the craziest part, not even death could hold him. Three days later, he gave death its final blow and the grave had to release the Lord of life. The one who in the very last chapter of the Bible declares victory, saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. This is the one whose first coming we celebrate at Christmas. Not just because he came, but because of why he came, to save us. Eternity took on a body in order to secure a family for us. Christmas is when eternity entered time and made a new kind of family. And the one who is the beginning and the end entered the middle in order to change our end for his glory and our good. And then in Revelation twenty-two seventeen, we hear the voice of Christmas calling to us. The advent of hope calling to us. The spirit and the bride say, Come. Let the one who hears say, come, let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. Come, says the God who gave everything to save us. Uh, Not get cleaned up and then you can come. Not to figure life out and and then come join us. Not make sure you have the the, the right clothes or know the right songs or have a big enough bank account. Not not make sure your family and your house and your life looks picture perfect. Not be sure to have your kids enrolled in the right kind of school or education system or make sure you have the right job or, or, or even get rid of all of your sin. None of that. He says, come. If you're thirsty, come. If you want the free gift of life, come. Everything else is a conversation that we can have later. Listen to me. Your life as a child, as as his child, your, your relationship in the arms of the everlasting Father is not determined by what you have done or not done, by what by how you have lived or not lived, by what you have said or not said. It is decided by what he has done on the cross, dying in our place for our sin. It is determined by how he lived perfect righteousness and compassion according to God's way of life. Most of all, it is dictated by what he has said, what he has spoken, a word not of condemnation but of salvation for any who would come. 
and drink of the waters of life. This morning, as we meditate on Isaiah's description of the the promised Savior, a a description that paints him with eternity and the, the tender care of a father, do you hear the voice of the one telling you to come? Maybe you're here not because you follow Jesus, but because someone invited you here this morning. Or maybe even because you pulled into the parking lot and you don't know why, but you just felt like you had to come to church this morning. Or maybe you used to follow Jesus, but, but now you're following other saviors and you just felt it's Christmas time and I, I guess I should be at church. Whatever the reason that you're here, I want you to hear the voice of that Savior through his people and through his word telling you to come, to come back, to trust in his love for you, in his care for you, in what he did for you, to believe that what he did on the cross counts for you, really and truly, that this is just the beginning of God's work in making you whole again, in making the whole world whole again. Maybe you're here this morning and you walked into this building following Jesus, but, but shaken by whatever you've experienced in this broken world. Wounded by the fathers who should have reflected the love of an everlasting father, but instead looked more like the father of lies. This morning, the everlasting father who saved you calls you to come and drink again of the waters of life. No matter what this broken world throws at you, the walking, talking heart of heaven is not only present, but working all things together for good for those who love him. The the, the pain he endured... The the suffering he willingly entered into, it all testifies to the heart of the Father who will go to the ends of the earth, to the depths of the grave, who will move heaven and earth to get to you. This Christmas, would you step further into his healing arms? Would you step further into trusting the God who saved you? Maybe there are some of you here who walked into this this building, and day in and day out, you are expressing the love of the everlasting Father in your life to others, to the children in your home, to the children that run in the the church halls and call this church home, who who love anyone that crosses your path, not just children, but, but adults who need to be reminded of the love of a father by being pointed to the supernatural God. Maybe you've come doing all that, but you're tired, you're exhausted, you're weary. You're, you're hope-filled, but let's be honest, you pulled into the station and you've been running on fumes. This Christmas, this Advent, you need to be reminded that the everlasting Father, his arms are wide open, and what you need to hold on to and inhabit is his love. That it is not your energy, it is not your love that cares for people, it is his love through you. This Christmas, this Advent, I want to invite you not only to hope again, but to rest again in the arms of the Father who loves you, the God who saved you. The hope of Christmas, because when Christmas is when eternity entered time and made a new kind of family, and this Christmas we get to inhabit that hope together as we wait for his second coming when Jesus will come and make everything right again. It's not right right now but someday it will be. And we defy everything by declaring that hope during Christmas.
This morning as we end, I want to invite you to inhabit that hope with me by praying. By praying and and reflecting on what the Lord has, has maybe brought up in your heart this morning. How the Lord has encouraged you or challenged you. How the Lord is even now making you look more like Jesus. Would you pray with me? Eternal God, loving Father, compassionate Savior, this morning we cry out the words of 1 Corinthians 16, 22, Lord, come quickly. We want you to return and to make everything right again. We want you to fix the brokenness of this world. We want you to repair the brokenness of our hearts and our homes and our relationships Our hope is desperate, but Lord, it is also real because of what you have done. Because of your first coming, we can hope in your second coming with confidence because you did the unimaginable. You became human for us. And this morning, we thank you. And we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And we hear your word respond to us in Revelation 22. That he who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen.